Oh my goodness, he lied again. He totally fibbed again. How will y'all ever trust me ever again? This person that you hardly know because this is only the second time that I have guest hosted this show. We did it again. We are doing another double freaking overtime. And that is absolutely definitely what we are calling this segment that is patented at this point. Double freaking overtime because this is going to be amazing. So stick that in your pope and smike it. Whatever that means. It is going to be nuts. So you'll definitely want to stick around for this. So one interview that we really liked was with Mark Dudzik about the U.S. Labor Party effort from the 90s. Um, we felt like that would be a timely interview as we roll into another election season in particular. And then since Jacob was just on Max's East Palestine fundraiser, we figured reviewing that event would be worthwhile. So with that, uh, we will be replaying an interview with a rail worker and then some reactions to conservatives doing what they do best, which is trying to co-opt that issue. And then we wrap up the year with a very fun debate on child labor with a totally true, totally real pro-child labor lawyer. So make sure you stick around for that. But first up, our interview with Mark Dudzik about the U.S. Labor Party effort in the 90s. So we've got Mark Dudzik in the Zoom now. Mark Dudzik is chair of the labor campaign for single-payer health care, and he was the national organizer for the U.S. Labor Party that formed in 1996, and, he, and that's what he's here to talk to us yeah. about today. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. Yeah, it's great to be here. Right, right. So, you know... Mark, I think the first thing when you know, so so I, I wanted to talk to you about the the U.S. Labor Party because I think that, that experiment in in the '90s was really interesting. It was interesting, I think, for the time period that it came up in. It was interesting for you know what y'all did, and 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 I I read about it in Jacobin. Um, I read an interview that you gave them back in 2015. Um, and then I I listened to an interview that you gave to the Jacobin Show about a year ago and i read your piece that you wrote in 2012 as a kind of post-mortem of of the labor party um and and you know i i i hope that we'll, we'll get into some of some of what was discussed in those areas and maybe some of uh, some other things but i think the first thing to do when we're talking about the u.s labor party from the 90s is um you know why did you feel like you needed a different party from the Republicans and the Democrats. Um, I, I wasn't around in the 90s, uh, it, at least in a political way. You know, I was part of the 90s. I was I was physically around, but, you know, <laughs> but the rest of it, I, I literally wasn't. But, you know, I can imagine that union leadership did similar things that they do today regarding politics and politicians that really frustrates me, which is not to level with me as a union member and say, look, Republicans want to destroy you and eat your children, <laughs> and, and Democrats don't want to destroy you as much, right? <laughs> and so, and they're they're a better enemy to have. The Democrats are, and which is more or less my calculation, right? I you know, uh, and I I think that they're the lesser of two evils, and I think that that's an adult way 
you know, a mature way to look at the two parties that we have right now. And but they they put out what what in my mind are, are just really really gross statements fawning statements about how amazing Biden is and how, you know, the best president ever or this politician is a champion for working people uh, to, to folks that just really, you know, factually aren't right. And and, you know, so what was your pitch to folks like that back then? that are really kind of bought into the idea that that not only are Democrats a lesser of, e- of the two evils, but they're actually they're actually really good. I love Democrats. What was your pitch to those folks? Well, we didn't really have to make much of a pitch inside the labor movement in the mid-1990s. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I'd been active in the trade union movement since the 70s um, and really witnessed this horrific uh, assault on um, workers in the United States that began in the late 1970s and would really intensified under the uh, the Reagan and the the Bush presidencies um, um, in the 1980s into the early uh, 1990s. Um, you know the sort of uh, the symbolic moment for all of that was. Um, the Patco strike in 1981, when Ronald Reagan um, replaced 13,000 striking air traffic controllers, uh, permanently replaced them, and kind of set the signal that this was open open season on union busting. So, uh, so we, you know, suffered through this, you know, incredible assault in the uh, uh, late 70s. Uh, 80s into the early 90s um, that at the time we called it Reaganism. I guess now, you know, you might call it neoliberalism. Um, And then in 1992, you know, there was this beginning of a political revival and a guy named Bill Clinton got elected president. um, And, you know, he was a Democrat for the first time in 12 years. Um, And there was a lot of hope that maybe we could begin to change. We wanted to do some modest labor law reform. We wanted to make it illegal to um, permanently replace striking workers. You know, the U.S. has this weird loophole in our labor law. It says they can't fire you for striking, but they can permanently replace you, which is, you know, you try to figure out the difference when you're standing on the the line to the food bank. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... um, uh, we wanted to reform labor law. We wanted real health care reform. We wanted to begin to make progress. So Bill Clinton got elected, but he got elected by, you know, kind of embracing a kinder, gentler version of Reaganism or a kinder, gentler version of neoliberalism. So instead of, you know, an opening um, for workers' rights and the ability to organize and to fight back, you know, we had he he put absolutely no political capital into labor law reform. He totally screwed up health care reform by uh, embracing a market-based approach to health care reform rather than expanding uh, uh, Medicare uh, and public health care programs. And then that, you know, that all fell apart and got attacked by uh, corporate interests. Um, you know, he attacked poor people and scapegoated poor people, went after um, uh, people who were receiving public assistance programs and and sort of instituted this whole idea of, of you know, workfare, that you have to work for substandard wages in order to be eligible for any kind of social benefits. And then the capper of all the cappers was that he pushed through um, um, 
the NAFTA agreement, the free trade agreement with uh, Mexico in uh, in the mid 90s. Uh, this is something that the uh, neoliberals and the Reaganites had been uh, foaming at the mouth for for decades, you know, decades, the ability to um, um, uh, remove all of the constraints to globalization and be able to move uh, move work offshore um, at a moment's notice with no restrictions um, and in either direction into places where workers had you know substandard uh, conditions and no real rights to organize and uh, um, you know it that really opened up the floodgates uh, for this period of globalization and so people in my world um, were more than ready to break with the Democrats in the 1990s. And, you know, we certainly had the lesser of two evils problems. But, you know, the real question was, you know, how can we how can we achieve this break? How can we do this break without, um, you know, completely making things worse during the transition? But there, this was a moment where, you know, it's an extreme disenchantment with uh, the promises of a uh, a corporate-controlled Democratic Party, coupled with a period where labor was beginning to wake up again and fighting back, and you know, embracing some new ideas. So, that was that was sort of the moment that gave rise to this Labor Party effort. I think that you know, when I was reading your piece from from 2012, um, reviewing you know your assessment of of a sort of rising tide within the labor movement of an, an increased interest in militancy and, um, you know, that the formation of the Labor Party coincided with the um, the New Voices slate or, or uh, you know, the, the, slate, the, uh, the slate of reformers that was elected to the AFL-CIO uh, executive board in the 90s. Um, and, and, you know, there was some real interest in, in uh, from what I can tell, and, and from your recounting of it, in some of these new ideas, uh, go, or, or even you know to a certain extent going back to older ideas of militancy and, and organizing workers, uh, that we're seeing, you know, that is in some ways it seems analogous to now that there's you know a renewed interest in in labor, and and so I think that it's important for us to kind of review what happened because obviously the result of that renewed interest from within labor in the 90s didn't turn the tide for workers in America and so you know how can we you know how can we learn the lessons from from that era uh, to try to to try to make it different this time and I, I think that's something that's that's you know pretty important to do and so what was the uh, and y'all did a lot of work, before the founding convention, um, you know, you didn't just say we're going to be a labor party. Um, it, you know, in in your article uh, to assuage the consciences of the politically pure, right? You know, you uh, that's not that's not why you wanted to. You didn't want to give people just just give them a choice, right? You know, you wanted the labor party to be a real thing, to have a real grounding in in. Uh, in the labor movement and in the communities where you were going to be running candidates. And so talk to us about some of that work that y'all did before the founding convention in 96 for, you know, the five years or more uh, that y'all were working as the Labor Party advocates. Yes, I mean, you know, for the beginning, we thought we needed to take what we called an organizing approach to politics. That is building, you know, building out a real constituency and building out uh, kind of political relationships that are organic um, and connect, you know, a political party to real actual people rather than to a 
kind of a network of funders and um, um, advertisers uh, that American politics has become. So we tried to be very thoughtful and systematic about it. One of the first things we uh, we did was we developed a very simple political views uh, um, survey that uh, we challenged local and uh, regional union leaders to administer to their members. Because, you know, when we would talk to you know, particularly like local union leaders who are in the grassroots and are, you know, understand how difficult uh, it is to uh, represent workers under this current political system. You know, they'd say, yeah, it's a great idea, but the members aren't ready for it. So we said, why don't you ask your members? So we developed a survey that asked uh, people what they felt about both political parties and whether they felt it was time to uh, to launch a labor party. And, you know, we found out that, you know, everybody from uh, school teachers in Wisconsin to coal miners in Virginia agreed that neither political party represented workers' interests. And at the time had come to begin to explore having a party of our own. So that kind of created some legitimacy to uh, uh, to begin to develop uh, momentum uh, for uh, uh, thinking about how we can uh, break with the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, the second thing I think that we did that was very important is that we wanted to make sure that the folks who were at the center of this effort, who were, you know, kind of leading this effort, were people who actually represented uh, working class people, that they weren't just a bunch of self-chosen um um, profits, um, you know, that they have, they were in the trenches fighting on behalf of working people and were accountable to working people. So, you know, we had convened an early meeting um, with about 75 or 80 uh, union leaders who represented about half a million workers. And, you know, we, we tried to use that as a basis to uh, uh, begin to talk to people. And then the other thing I think that we did was we developed some really systematic uh, educational materials that uh, you know we're based on a worker-based education model where participate participatory education you know where people began to uh, understand how corporate power functions in our society and how to effectively organize around it so we began to develop kind of a common um, um understanding of the problems and a common consensus about where we need to go to uh to solve those problems and now we did you know going through the uh from the early 1990s, you know, right beyond the actual organization of the Labor Party at the 96 convention. And the the who were all the uh, what who were some of the main players in in this? Uh, you know, as you were going into the uh, the Labor Party convention in in 96, uh, you know, who were some of the le leaders of of the Labor Party advocates? Yeah, so. The idea really kind of came out of my union, which was uh, the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, um, which is now part of the Steel Workers Union. Um, you know, we had just kind of had a lot of internal discussion about this. One of our leaders was a guy named Tony Mizaki, who, you know, was kind of a labor visionary. He was uh, probably the person most most responsible for the passage of the Occupational Health and Safety Act in 1970 and kind of redefined the struggle for health and safety as a struggle against corporate power, built alliances with the environmental movement. So Tony was a real visionary and had a lot of respect in our union. Um, and, you know, so he kind of opened up a discussion. Uh, he ran for national office with uh, on a unity slate in 1988. And one of the 
planks of that slate was that we would begin to explore the possibility of launching a labor-based political party. So we had a mandate uh, to move forward. Um, we worked with some other unions that had been historically very supportive of these kind of efforts, like the United Electrical Workers, uh, the UE, and uh, the Longshore Union on the West Coast, the ILWU. And then a bunch of other unions began to join in on this. Um, you know, the AFGE, a Federation of Government Employees, you know, the, the uh, Al Gore had, uh, again, this neoliberalism with a human face had come up with this idea called reinventing government, which was basically, you know, um, subcontracting out government work mm -hmm. and putting a thumb on the, the backs of government employees. Um, and, um, you know, this was supposed to, you know, reignite faith in government, blah, blah, blah. But it was, you know, basically another squeeze on government employees. So they were you know, outraged about, you know, how both parties had sort of betrayed them. Uh, the Union of Railroad Workers, the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way employees joined up. They uh, had a contract imposed on them by Congress, which, by the way, may be happening real soon again. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they had organized, uh, you know, an effective threat to shut down the railroad industry and Congress basically forced them back to work, you know, with a contract that they legislated on their own backs uh democratic congress uh so uh you know they joined the fight as some of the newer unions uh the union that became the national nurses uh united uh at the time it was california nurses national nurses organizing committee um you know they were a you know a, a vibrant union that had just sort of evolved um you know into a real vibrant organizing union and then you know they embraced this group the farm labor organizing committee a group of mostly um uh latino uh agricultural workers uh, you know joined up with us uh, so those are the kind of groups that we attracted and then a lot of you know old school industrial unions that had been under the gun um you know the local leadership and some of the rank and file activists uh were very much attracted to it new activists in the teamsters union seiu those were the folks that kind of came together and at the founding convention uh you said that there were people there were uh 1600 union members there and representing unions with half a million workers is that right um by the time we went to the founding convention i think there were 1500 delegates and i can't swear that they were all union members but almost all of them were sent by their unions to be delegates there um and i think we represented about three million workers by the time we uh had our founding convention um so and so you what know, were we some of the things that what were some of the things that y'all did at the at the founding convention? You know, you, you mentioned that there were there were speeches, but but what were the you know, the debates and, and the resolutions and, and the platform and, and all that kind of stuff that came out of that convention? Yeah, well the main thing was we you know, we had to figure out what our national platform would be. Um and we didn't wanna, you know, do the sort of laundry list uh, of the left kind of a platform. We wanted to um grounded in the sort of uh, uh, concerns and experiences of working people. So we actually had a, a process for about a year prior to the convention. We went around the country and hold here, held hearings and discussions at various union halls about what should be the key planks of our uh, uh, platform. And, you know, it was, uh, you know, we came together with a, a call for economic and social justice. Um, 
a lot of the planks of that platform are, you know, things that are just just becoming part of the uh, current political uh, dialogue and debate right now. You know, uh, you know, we pushed for the right to organize. We pushed for adequate uh, family leave. We pushed for free higher education, which, by the way, you know, uh, the Sanders campaign basically adopted almost verbatim from uh, the, uh, the materials that we put together on uh, a free public higher education, Medicare for all, uh, you know, these were sort of the components of our platform. And we also tried to figure out how um, a party would begin to function, you know, during this sort of transition period when we didn't have the critical mass yet to do a uh, full uh, break and run uh, Labor Party candidates. So, you know, we developed a uh, beginning of an electoral approach, which sort of tried to figure out what would need to be in place to run effective electoral campaigns that weren't just sort of spoiler campaigns. Um, and we tried to figure out how this party would govern itself, you know, to make sure that um, unions would have a uh, key voice at the table, but that all kind of organizations uh, and groupings that represented working people would uh, be effectively represented, and that you know we would also reflect the diversity of the U.S. working class. So we began to struggle with a lot of those, uh, a lot of those questions of how to build a, an, an effective party and how to run it effectively over time. I, I think that one of those questions about you know, reckoning with the fact that we don't want to be a spoiler and, and, and you know, reckoning with that, I, I think it's such an important thing that that y'all did that others, uh, that, that other third party movements, uh, you know, and, and I think, like you said in your piece, that, that may assuage the consciences of the politically pure, um, it's not effective, doesn't, it hasn't really produced results. And you also say, this is from the article again, quote, unions and working people in general have real concrete interests and concerns which must be defended in the electoral arena, even as we work to transcend the boundaries set by the two parties of the bosses. The prospect of breaking completely with the Democratic Party without an established alternative was too risky for even the most militant unions and remains the biggest challenge to any effort to build an independent labor politics. And, you know, recognizing that there is actually a real risk, that they're not exactly the same, and there is a risk to allowing Republicans to take power that will hurt unions and working people and our communities and our families. Um, what was the the decisions that y'all made? What were the decisions that y'all made regarding that um, at the 96th convention and then moving forward about how to how to work around that question? Well, you know, I mean, we never obviously found the real solution to that problem, you know, because the overwhelming threats coming from the Republican Party, you know, ultimately overwhelmed us um, in the early 2000s. But, you know, where we were heading was, you know, kind of, you you know, looking at what it would take to build power for working people that could move then into the electoral uh, uh, arena. So, you know, the, you know, the first thing, you know, in terms of what, how we looked at this process is we saw this as linked to a broader resurgence of a working class movement that went, you know, beyond politics. You know, the folks who won the AFL-CIO um, election in 95, the reformers, you know, they had a program uh, which ultimately 
failed that you know was uh, they wanted to organize a million workers a year um and we you know felt that if we were part of a labor movement that was bringing a million new workers you know in, in, into unions every year um that that kind of a labor movement would be the kind of labor movement that could um break through and develop independent working class politics when that resurgence that brief little blip in the uh labor movement in the mid 90s began to fade by the early 2000s the prospects for independent politics kind of faded with them because we then had to you know uh, you know as we did throughout the 80s we had to circle the wagon you know to protect what we had against the growing assaults you know with the the George W Bush administration and you know all of the attacks that took place uh in the early 2000s so um um that you know that was really the challenge was you know number one understand that the only way you can do this is when you have a resurgent uh movement that's active all across the board and you know in communities and the economic sphere um and then you can move into politics from a position of power um and then secondly you know we wanted to you know really think about you know moving away from a dilettantish approach to politics of yeah we'll just you know put our names in and hope the people vote for us you know we wanted to you know make sure that anybody who wanted to run as a candidate really assessed what it would take to run an effective candidacy in a district did they have you know assess the level of uh union support that they had in the district uh, uh understand how much money they would need to raise to run an effective campaign have a organization on the ground capable of running if you can't even put poll watchers into every precinct in a uh, constituency that you want to run in it's it's an indicator of you know the lack of organization the lack of serious organization that you would need to uh, effectively run a candidacy so we tried to take you know that kind of very serious approach to uh, building political power um and you know begin to move it and you know had we had some more time had the labor movement uh continue to um um grow and expand uh, and challenge corporate power in other arenas you know perhaps perhaps we could have achieved escape velocity right right it you mentioned that uh in your in your interview with uh, the jacobin show on youtube about a year ago you um you mentioned that you don't think that it, it, you know, that there's that a labor party that's created now couldn't only have unions at the center of it, and and you know, you said in your 2012 piece that that you know the Brazilian Workers Party and the NDP in Canada were kind of you know models that y'all looked at, um, and I wonder if the the what you said last year about the need to have social movements in addition to unions and worker centers and these other, you know, alternative labor organizations and community organizations represented in a quote unquote labor party. Were you taking inspiration there from the MAS in Bolivia? Because that that seems to be the model that they use there to elect AVO and, and that group of folks in, in that party. I wonder if, if you know, uh, that has played into your understanding of, of what it would take to have a, a winning political coalition. Yeah, you know, I think primarily what I would, I'm looking at is sort of the development within the U.S. working class, where the centers of gravity for working class organization are moving to. Um, you know, the the 
structures that make it hard for workers to join unions, you know, are still in place. And, but, you know, the problems that workers face, you know, workers are going to try to come up with other ways to resolve those problems if they can't do the best solution, which is to organize unions and negotiate contracts. So, you know, workers' centers, you know, other kinds of community organizations, insurgencies, immigrant organizing, you know, all of these things have sort of evolved over the last 20 years and matured in ways that, uh, you know, they weren't really there, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And unions were much more, you know, they were probably uh, double the union density back in the mid 90s, you know, it was mm -hmm. probably, I don't remember the numbers, but it was probably, you know, uh, you know, 18% as opposed to nine or 10%. So um, right. unions were much more, uh, you know, even in their weakened state in the 90s had much more influence within the working class. Um, you know, you can go drive hundreds of miles in uh, through the South and not encounter a single union member nowadays. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, you know, so that that's a reality. And, you know, we have to think about, uh, you know, where, uh, where you can develop vibrant working class organizations and those folks need to come together to think about independent labor politics you know the other obvious uh thing of interest is to take a hard look at bernie sanders two campaigns for the presidency and how where that uh how that developed and the support because you know basically you know while trying to run within the democratic party uh which is probably the only space that exists right now to do this stuff you know he he ran on a very sophisticated independent working class politics program and you know uh, there's a lot to be learned from uh those experiences uh, over the last uh, 6 or 7 years does uh does the experiences of the last 6 or 7 years with Bernie Sanders running pretty effectively even though not winning the nomination for the presidency um, and DSA electing candidates mostly as democrats occasionally as independents uh, across the country in state legislatures and a few in Congress. Does that change does that change your calculation at all about the need for a uh, a quote unquote, you know, officially independent um, party that does break from the Democratic Party? Or do you think that maybe it's it's just as good to be a parasite on the Democrats and, and use their ballot line um, for uh, you know a sub independent organization i think for the moment the the battleground for working class politics is probably within the democratic party almost everywhere in the country uh i think ultimately to think that we're independent working class politics can coexist with the kind of corporate power that also exists in the democratic party you know, that's a mistake that our politics is always going to end up being stunted, crushed, compromised, diluted, you know, uh, under those structures. So we got to find a way to escape uh, those structures. Ultimately, ultimately, there has to be some kind of a break. We need a party of our own, whether we take out over the Democratic Party and throw out the corporate uh, uh, Democrats, whether we leave that party from a position of strength, uh, form our own, whether we do some kind of uh, inside outside uh, approach for some period of time. Uh, you know, there's some people like uh, Seth Ackerman at the Jacobin have written some very interesting 
um, scenarios are around that, thinking about how the legal structures of political parties could be used. You know, I, I think that's a, you know, that will begin to emerge from our own practice as uh, organizers. Um, I don't think that there's a set formula. You know, there's some people who believe that, you know, unless you, you know, completely break with the Democratic Party and and call your party a workers party. It's not a real party, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, you know, I, I think you have to be really flexible and understand, you know, what what is the cutting edge for independent working class politics at the moment that you're trying to organize? Ultimately, workers need a party of their own. It's the only way that we're going to really advance our interests. And that's, you know, it's the big unfinished task of the U.S. working class. And it's why we don't have health care as a right. It's why we have such low union density in this country. It's why we don't have, uh, you know, adequate leave to take care of our families. It's why uh, it's almost illegal for workers to organize in unions. All of these reasons are because we lack the political power that workers in most other uh, advanced countries in the world and in places like Bolivia, you know, have figured out how to do. Um, and we got to figure this out one way or another. And it's our great, it's a great challenge that, you know, hopefully we can pass on to this new generation of, uh, of engaged working class uh, activists and leaders who are beginning to come together. What do you think are the biggest lessons to take from the experiment in the 90s and the early 2000s uh, uh, within the labor movement to build a labor party? So a working class party has got to, you know, got to be organically connected to its working class constituency. It cannot be self, you know, self-proclaimed. Um, you know, we, Tony Mazaki always had the union hall dictum. And he said, if you can't pass an issue through your own union at your local union hall, don't bring it here to the Labor Party to try to pass, you know, and expect us to do something. You know, we have to build this that's organically connected to the needs and the aspirations of uh, the people that we want to organize. Um, I think that that's really, you know, that, that that kind of a model for how to build power for working people is got to be central to any party building project. And it's got to be linked to this broader challenge of building a working class movement. Um, and then, you know, I think um, we we just have to be, you know, really analytical about how um, difficult it is to continue to advance our interests within the structures of the Democratic Party. You know, what what happened post Bernie in 2020 was very, very interesting how the party structures came together to kill a lot of these progressive initiatives, you know, but on the other hand, you know, we have a Biden administration that is more responsive to workers' needs than the last two Democratic administrations uh, were. Mm. And that's, you know, provides some opportunity for us to maneuver and to to build some power. But you know, I think you got to keep your eye on the long-term goal of, of developing a real independent working class politics and, and how that moves tactically through all these uh, difficult uh, barriers that uh, the U.S. political system sets up for those kind of kind of challenges. And I think that you said in, in some of your some of your writing or some of your interviews that that you know the first step to making that happen is is really building is really building power kind of on the shop floor, expanding unions, uh, you know, um, organizing. Right? <laughs> it's not necessarily um, it's not necessarily venturing out into electoral p politics before you have that base of power. 
Yeah, it's generally the case. Although, you know, we're in a difficult time right now. And, um, you know, we have to be, we have to contend in the electoral arena or we're going to lose what little that we currently have. You know, the, these people who are, you know, uh, threatening to take over the both houses of Congress, you know, are going to go after our Social Security and our Medicare. Mm -hmm. And they're going to make it even harder for workers to organize. You know, they're going to challenge some of the uh, the rulings that the current National Labor Relations Board has made to, uh, um, you know, at least force uh, these corporations to, you know, adhere to some basic uh, basic standards when you're running a union campaign. You know, those type of things, you know, we got to we got to figure out how to be there and how to mobilize in those areas. And, you know, what's so frustrating is you can play those kind of defensive games for decades and be worse off at the end than you were at the beginning. So, you know, you've got to couple that with a, some kind of a vision and a plan for how we can advance both politically and, and along a broad range of social and economic uh, bases. Yeah. Adam, do you have any questions for Mark or anything? Well, I just wanted to thank you for your time, first of all, and, and for your service to the movement for so many years. And uh, really what I'm thinking about is Alabama specifically and kind of stepping away from the national scene and looking at Alabama, because right now we have a supermajority uh, Republican control of the entire state government apparatus and, and most of the local governments outside of Birmingham, Mobile, and, and the Black Belt. And the Democratic Party is unable to contest uh, more than half of the elections. And so we're in a situation in Alabama where maybe unlike many other places we wouldn't play a spoiler you know if if right now on the books there was an alabama labor party that could field candidates mathematically speaking we wouldn't spoil any election because the, when the democrats are losing by 20 to 30 percent across the board <laughs> you know uh, it's not a big enough pie it doesn't matter how many times we cut it so that's what's going on in my mind. And I don't know that I necessarily have a question per se, but I, I'm really thinking about um, this experience that y'all had in the 90s and kind of the lessons to, to bring forward into this current moment and how that may apply to Alabama and what those of us here in the Alabama labor movement may need to be thinking about in the conversations we need to have uh, because we are completely on the outs. Uh, there is no working class representation inside of Alabama's political structure. And um, in our case, you know, the Democratic Party hardly seems more viable than just starting something from scratch. And so I think that's that's something we have to wrestle with down here in Alabama. And I don't know if you have any, you know, kind of thoughts or reactions to that, but that's uh, what's really resonated with me in this conversation. Just an, an interesting addendum to that, Adam, and that, that you might find, uh, you know, kind of, uh, funny, Mark, is that the Libertarian Party in Alabama has put more candidates on the ballot than the Democratic Party. Huh. I didn't know that. That that's sad. I'm not sure. I, you know, in a sad, funny kind of way, I guess. Yeah. But, right. You know, I mean, one of the, one of the projects we tried doing um, is uh, we we tried to launch uh, the South Carolina Labor Party as a, an electoral par party and the early 2000s, and it actually still exists um, as an electoral party in South Carolina. It never, it, for a lot of reasons, it's 
hasn't uh, developed uh, ways that we hoped for in the early 2000s. But, you know, our and our calculation was exactly what you just said. You know, we had a, the South Carolina, especially in the early 2000s, had a Democratic Party that embraced right to work and other anti-labor mm -hmm. legislation. Um, and, you know, extraordinarily disrespected its base, which was the black working class voters in South Carolina. Um, and so we thought that there would be a, there's an opportunity there to begin to talk about a, a new way for what did we call it? Another voice for South Carolina. And we actually, um, to get an electoral registration in South Carolina, you had to um, um, petition with voters from, I think it was every county in the state. So we went out and uh, talked to um, working class people in South Carolina at places like, uh, you know, uh, flea markets and swap meets and stuff like that. And uh, um, signed up 16,000 of them signed a petition to uh, uh, call for a Labor Party in South Carolina. So it was a it's a real interesting uh, effort. You know, it kind of floundered because right as we were getting ready to launch it, Obama threw his hat into the ring nationally. Uh, the African-American community in, in particular really saw this as a, you know, very exciting opportunity. And then we would have been a spoiler in that vision. Um, and, you know, we had to kind of step down and whatever. But, um, you know, the uh, the actual act of going out there and talking to working class people, especially in a state where you don't have like structures like unions where you can talk to them sort of organically, you know, through, you know, their leaders and things was, a, you know, I think that's the way we can begin to build these things. And by, you know, when you talk, you know, what do they say when you're an organizer, you're supposed to listen 70% of the time mm -hmm. and talk 30%. I mean, that's the kind of um, grassroots party building efforts that I think it would take in a place like Alabama. But, you know, working class Alabamans, you know, I'm sure have massive grievances and some of them are distorted by, you know, racial prejudices and cultural things. And they're played by, you know, both the Democrats and the Republicans, um, you know. Um, but, you know, I think if you all thought about how to sit down and have those kind of kitchen table conversations with working class people, you might be able to you know, over time, begin to build a real movement of uh, work working class people that could challenge politically um, in a place like Alabama. And you're right. It is, you know, you're not being a spoiler when, a, you know, the other party can't get close to 20 percent of what right. the main party. So, uh, <laughs> right. you know, there's not a lot at play there. They're not going to, you know, the national or if they're not contesting it at all you know you're right. definitely yeah. not a spoiler if there's no democrat right? yeah no that that's a huge opportunity i think for uh you know in, in uncontested uh districts and things you know to to think about building something and uh um going in there but you know it has to be organic it has to come from from the people can't just fly a bunch of folks in and you know expect that you know the young socialist from New York City is mm -hmm. going to have the same appeal in uh, rural Alabama that she has in uh, Brooklyn. So, um, right, right. You know, got to really emerge from the lived experiences of uh, working class people. Well, and I think that if there's something hopeful to kind of leave with, there is a, a labor movement here, just as there is across the country, that is resurgent. Uh, which means new leaders are being formed in the struggle yep. at the workplace and in the broader community. And, you know, who knows? 
uh, maybe some of these uh, coal miners in Brookwood and Amazon workers in Bessemer uh, and CWA workers in Auburn, maybe these are the the future leaders of, of, a, of a political formation for and by working class people in Alabama. And um, I just wanted to, last thing, Mark, you might want to know that next week we interviewed a newly elected chair of the Alabama Democratic Party. So if you think of any good <laughs> questions for us, uh, send them our way and, and we'll put them on the hot seat. I might tune into that interview. <laughs> All right. uh, I think it'll be fun. It should be interesting. <laughs> Should be interesting, that's for sure. But thank you so much for for sharing your wisdom with us, and and uh, you've given me a lot to chew on for sure. Uh, was, this was great. It's great to talk to people who are really trying to seriously think through these issues. So thanks yeah, for I mean, having it, me. It, absolutely. I mean, it, it's definitely something that we've you know we are uh, you know we have uh, uh, reorganized the North Alabama Labor Council here um, back in twenty twenty is when we were rechartered. Um, and, and, you know, the Labor Council here was dechartered, right? We have, we, you know, we have tens of thousands of union members in North Alabama didn't have a Labor yeah. Council. Um, so, mm-hmm. so you know, that's something that, that, that we've definitely thought about, you know, just because there's so many uncontested races. You know, why the hell not do a, like a North Alabama Labor Party um, if, if that's something that, that the folks are interested in? So we'll who see. knows? We'll see. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. We'll I appreciate yeah. your time. Keep an eye on you all. Thanks. Right. Appreciate it. All right. Last week, there was a horrible accident in East Palestine, Ohio. Uh, to my knowledge, it hasn't yet claimed any lives, which we are very, very thankful for. Um, but it has caused a lot of damage and made an entire community so unsafe that it is illegal for residents to go home because uh, for residents that are within a certain proximity of the accident to go home because the chemicals that were on this train were are so hazardous. It's it's made all the more horrible because this was entirely predictable and avoidable. It's so predictable, in fact, that multiple railroaders have predicted that incidents like this will happen on multiple uh, uh, on multiple outlets. Working people with Maximilian Alvarez, he talked to a railroader, Jay, who described an incident, a a hypothetical incident, eerily similar to this one. There was a More Perfect Union video from back in December where a veteran railroader at a protest in D.C. again described a situation eerily similar to this one because they knew what the rail companies were doing to the industry, were doing uh, to (laughs) regulations, what they were doing to their workers, and they could see what was coming down the tracks. So we wanted to get somebody on to discuss this, and today we're joined by veteran railroader with 40 years in the industry. He is a past local and regional officer for the Brotherhood of Locomotive uh, Engineers and Trainmen, which is a Teamsters affiliate, and he's currently a representative for the Railroad Workers United, an interunion cross-craft solidarity caucus of railroad workers, Fritz Edler. Fritz, 
Thanks for taking the time to talk to us this morning. Thank you for having us on. Uh, and appreciate the Valley Labor Report uh, because it's incidents like this and the general problem on the rails that is it's going to require regular people all across the country to raise these issues uh, because unfortunately, up to this point, uh, railroaders themselves using their vehicles and whatnot have not uh, been able to get enough of a voice. It's all about stakeholdership, representation of railroad workers and the communities that are affected. So thank you very much. And Absolutely. let's talk about this. Yeah. yeah, well, so let's let's just start off with kind of a description of what's happened. What what how did this derailment happen? Well, so from what we can tell, and these are evolving matters, of course, uh, from what we can tell at this point, the, the train, which was made up on the 3rd of February down close to St. Louis, uh, was headed to Conway, Pennsylvania. In the course of the route, it had a few problems, but the critical one was when a car in the middle of the train developed a problem with an axle, an axle uh, and this is a very classic railroad defect that is is very dangerous. It's actually the cause of a great many uh, derailments and wrecks. Uh, and this um, basically what happens is, as you can imagine, uh, the axle and wheel are supposed to turn. If things interfere with it turning uh, mechanically, then it can actually create uh, problem up to and including melting down so that essentially the axle disappears functionally. So uh, at this point, this is what we think is the immediate, what they call approximate cause. Mm -hmm. uh, the big problem going forward is not just to find out why it was that that was allowed to happen, but what are the root problems that come before that? And that's really the critical thing because there's uh, a tradition in the class one railroads of, you know, they find the proximate cause, they find some individuals, they punish those individuals, and then they never have to address the policies. Mm -hmm. And it was a concerning amount of time before the public even found out exactly what this train was carrying, right? Yeah, and of course, this gets back to the critical, crucial question of uh, how the train is run. So in this case, the train had, fortunately for everyone concerned, this train had a crew of three. Normally, it would have been just two, an engineer and a conductor, but they also had a trainee. So the fact that they had the crew that had the capacity to do things like separate the locomotive power, pull it away from the uh, wreck train to prevent further problems, but to be there on the site with their expertise and their knowledge of the consist and their ability to, to interact with the, uh, the situation, uh, that was a key thing. However, it took them a while, it took the responders a while and the authorities a while to figure out exactly what they were dealing with, partly because of fire. Um, and so, uh, again, what, so the, the key thing here was is that they were able to determine fairly quickly what the consist was, but the, then the question was, is, you know, where are the dangerous products and uh, what's happening with them? the original instruction to the public was to shelter in place. There's a big question about whether that was the best response at the time, but uh, uh, there'll be a thorough investigation by the National Sa uh, 
Transportation Safety Board that will report on these things. We just have to keep the pressure on them to make sure that a full public inquiry is made regarding this this matter and that all of the contributing factors, including, including the um, trying to avoid scheduled maintenance, uh, the question of why the defect wasn't uh, found earlier, because this is a ridiculous situation that you could actually have a, a train that has this kind of a, an, uh, an axle problem that isn't discovered until the very last minute when it's too late. Ooh, right. And, and this, you know, and, and this train was carrying, what was it, chlorine? Uh, it had various products. 20 of the 150 cars were hazmat cars. Uh, 10 of those 20 were involved in the 50 cars that actually came off the rails and tumbled. The, the critical ones, the ones that uh, are getting the attention is, is called vinyl chloride. It's a component in manufacture of plastics. It's a particularly dangerous chemical. And in this case, one of the thing, one of the results was when they finally ended up having to uh, use a small explosive device to release pressure in some of these cars, they actually uh, released byproducts, which were phosgene gas and hydrogen chlorine gas into the atmosphere. Phosgene gas, for those who don't know, is a World War I trench warfare gas. Uh, These are dangerous things. Uh, So, um, and there are things about the way that the train was maintained, the way that the wayside was maintained, the way that the train was blocked, all of these contributed to making the the dangers worse than they would have had to have been. And what what does that kind of gas do? This this actual literal you know uh, weapon of war. What does that do when you know when when people make contact with it? Uh, unfortunately, that's a that's beyond the scope of my expertise. I, I am hazmat certified, but what you basically do is you you have reference materials to you know to determine when you're figuring out okay this consist had this and this and this chemicals in it and uh in this case your big problem is fire in this case your big problem is air in this case it's explosion in this case the case we're talking about the vinyl chloride has many bad aspects uh, and the the real thing I would want to say, I mean, people can look up phosgene gas if they want to, but uh, is that one of the things that happens in a hazmat wreck like this is that the intense heat of the fires actually produce brand new chemical components, toxic chemical components that weren't in the consist to start with. It's a chemical process, right? Mm-hmm. And those new uh chemical toxic chemicals end up in the in the water and in the soil and in some cases they're forever chemicals uh this is one of the things we saw in the 2013 wreck in the town of lac megantic in canada so with a, one of the things that the public has to do is to have to make sure that the authorities follow up on all of the byproducts of the of the disaster not just the labeled ones on the tanks right right and so the um it, it, it's still the case that people within a certain proximity are not allowed to go back home right now. Is Actually, right? I don't or, think that's true now. I, as, to my knowledge, they were allowed to return, I want to say, uh, two nights ago. Okay. Uh, I believe it was two nights ago. 
Uh, and of course, there's still monitoring going on, and and they have there have been some reports of uh, you know detections and things like that. Although they assure everyone still that they haven't reached the levels that are concerning. Uh, this is air quality we're talking about. Uh, so hopefully the uh, the the monitors will be responsible to make sure that people know if it turns out that this is a uh, a problem that requires people to leave their homes again. So, uh, you know, all this sounds bad, but you know, when I saw the yesterday morning that um, that Norfolk Southern said they would give a twenty five thousand dollar check to the Ohio town where this happened. So, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, you know, that yeah, that's basically this is a back. <laughs> Here's a story about that. Uh, so I, I referred to the, the Lac Megantic wreck from 2013 up in uh, Quebec, which was a terrible event. Uh, not un well, it's not the same as the circumstances of this one, but in that case, 47 people in that town died immediately and some, some more and afterwards. But uh, the reason I mention it is because uh, one of the first things that happened after that wreck was representatives of unscrupulous law firms started showing up in town and signing people up, you know, for uh, uh, claim processing liability stuff and everything. Uh, and uh, so what's going on right now is, is that the corporation is doing everything that they can to uh, limit their liability and their um, uh, exposure, shall we say, to response from the public, try to get ahead of it, try to create some legal um, uh, protections. And that's what this money that you're talking about is part of. Which, you know, let's just to, so, so in case anybody listening on the radio didn't catch that sarcasm, $25,000 for this accident is obviously not enough. There's like, you know, I, I think somebody divided that by resident and it would be $50, you know, per resident in this town. So it's obviously, you know, n certainly not. And, you know, this shouldn't have happened in the first place. Right. But now that it has, that's $25,000 is not enough. But let's talk From a company that made $12 billion in profits last year is my understanding. And how many Fritz do you do you? know off the top of your head and I should have had this number ready but do you know off the top of your head how much money they've spent in stock buybacks recently I actually do not know that figure but it's a big factor and it is on all the class ones all the class ones that practice the uh, are currently practicing the operating this is across North America uh, the, the what they call precision scheduled railroading so yeah uh, but it's a big number, and it, what's happening is, is that instead of spending the money on making a safe railroad, which we know how to do, that's one mm. of the things that's key here is that the railroaders, and there are people in the industry that know how to do these things safely. They know what needs to be done. They know the science, and they're not allowed to because the corporations are dominated by uh, hedge fund operations that dictate that their big goal is to do stock buybacks. Right. And so, um, I, uh, looking it up really quickly, Norfolk Southern announces new $10 billion stock buyback program. This was from March of 2022. So, you know, and over 2.3 billion in 2018. 
insane. And so let's, you know, so that that's just to illustrate they've got money to fix this. And so let's talk about some of the things that they could have done, so, some of the things that we could do to avoid this. And one of those, Fritz, as I understand, is that this train did not have what are called electronically controlled pneumatic brakes. Can you talk to us about those brakes and, and some of, you Sure know, enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, 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 this is the thing that the industry itself did a lot of the research on and initially started having a favorable approach to. They call them ECP brakes. Um, uh, and then as soon as it started to be discussed that maybe this would be something that would be mandated, they all backed away from it. And now they spend a, a significant amount of money lobbying and using their power, which is uh, um, way more than anybody understands uh, to um, uh, make sure that they didn't get a regulation requiring ECP brakes. So essentially the way that all freight and passenger trains in the country run today um, is a, an extension of an early 20th century type of, of braking operation that involves uh, they're pneumatically controlled uh, by compressor on the locomotive and uh, the signal is carried throughout the train by the air pressure in the brake pipe that determines whether the brakes are on whether the brakes are off now this was a huge uh, step forward in the early 20th century compared to how things were before. But today we have far better technology and this is an example. So mm. with ECP braking, the way it works is that there, there's actually uh, electrically triggered braking devices on each individual car that uh, we have the technology now that, that we can um, uh, have each individual car act appropriately in the event of a braking situation. So in this situation, in the situation with this train without ECP braking, one of the things that happens is because the train parted in the middle at the where the original problem with the axle is, causes the brake pipes to part, the brake pipe vents the atmosphere. There's an emergency application of the of the brake. So, so for example, with the, the derailed cars, what you can see is that the first car that gets its brake applied is the first one where the brake is, and then the one behind it, and the one behind it, and the one behind it, and the one behind it. But the, what that means is, is that the heavy weight, and this train was blocked with the heaviest you know, 40% of its weight was in the last third of the train uh, is basically running up on a, on a mm. stopping car. So that's what creates a lot of the tumbling and stuff. But with ECP braking, you could actually have braking starting to happen at the rear, which would help to retard that momentum that's causing this jackknifing tumbling Thing. Now, if you look in back of me, the picture that you see right here is a derailment right in the middle of Washington, D.C., where I live. I had come back from Lac-Megantic, uh, a, uh, a visit there that related to the 2013 wreck on the night before May Day of 2016. And we got up that morning. This is the, what took place right in the middle of downtown DC. And it was essentially a very similar kind of a cause, which was a, a defect with a wheel axle. Um, and what the point that needs to be made here. So this wreck didn't 
hurt anybody, et cetera. But, um, but it was just luck that it didn't kill many people. It was only a couple of car lengths away from an apartment building and all of the transportation infrastructure you can see there. And it did have caustic materials that drained into the soil and into the water. Uh, so the, the uh, ECP breaking, which was your original point, is, is one of the ways we can move away from the dynamics of 19th century railroading. Yes. And, you know, the, the Lever News has some really good reporting about what the industry has done to try to fight some of these regulations. And they have some really good history about you know, the, uh, the the way that the Lever News reported it is that the the Obama administration did eventually issue a very narrow, um, some very narrow rules about ECP brakes on certain trains um, that were very narrowly defined, too narrowly defined. You know, I, you know, I think they said hazardous trains have to have ECP, ECP brakes, but that hazardous was so narrowly defined that even this train would not have fallen under that definition. But then in 2017, the Trump administration rescinded it and uh, the Lever News has reached out for to the Buttigieg Department of Transportation and the Department of Transportation has said they have no plans to reinstate even this narrow safety rule from the Obama era. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a scandal. This is a complete scandal because, uh, as you already pointed out, it's not like they don't have the money. Uh, right. And the science is there. The The evidence is overwhelming that this would be a, a better, safer way. Uh, in my career, I ran high-speed trains uh, that had ECP braking. Uh, and I can tell you personally, and there are others in the industry and in RWU, who have worked equipment that had ECP braking that uh, know know that it's a better uh, a better situation. So uh, this is where the this is where our problem is, and, and it was it's going to require public outcry, which is the reason why I hope your listeners uh, will also keep their uh, ears open, eyes and ears open about possibilities, opportunities to be able to talk about why we need to change this. What we really need to talk about, though, I mean, the ECP thing is, is very important, but we need to talk about precision schedule railroading. And we need to talk about, uh, for example, the, the labor strife of the fall that centered around the question of scheduling. All those things are part of what happened in Ohio. The other thing is, is that the railroads, including the Norfolk Southern, got rid of so many inspectors. And mm -hmm. after they got rid of those inspectors, then they did everything to get authority to do fewer inspections. So what we know now is that the, that through the grapevine is that the NS is doing what they always do, which is to go around looking for individuals to blame so that they can then, you know, discipline those individuals and not address the policies that got us to this place. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and let's, and, you know, the precision scheduled railroading, I mean, the ultimate, the ultimate thing of that is, is that it's making too few workers work too much. And 
illustrate for us how it is helpful to, you know, you mentioned that this particular train had three people on it, which made it, uh, which made it easier for them to respond and try to lessen the damage to the extent that they could, whereas it would have been harder if there were only two people. And the train companies now only want to have one person on these insanely long trains. And so how is it, you know, it, it, I'm just a layman. Why mm -hmm. is it, you know, asking this kind of rhetorically, yeah, why is it that having more people on the train is Let me make it very simple. If you only have one person on the train, the only thing that that train can do is go forward or stop. That is mm. it, period, final. So when they when the corporations say that this is what they're interested in, they're, say, they're saying to you that out of the thousands and thousands of trains that we sent out, that they would like to have them not able to back up not able to decouple, not able to separate, not able to do any of those things, which leaves, you know, I mean, so, I mean, so even for the layperson, you can imagine that right. if it, if what needed to be done was to back up or what needed to be done was to uncouple something that you'd have to have one person controlling the locomotive and another person doing the cut lever on the ground. Right. Mm, but right. if you have a single person there, there's no way that that can be done. So, Imagine even the millions of more mundane examples like your community is cut off from emergency services because there's a train across all of the road crossings and they don't have the ability to cut the crossing. Uh, you know, they can't if there's a, you know, a fire under a car, they can't uncouple stuff and move it away. There, there's uh, single person crews can't do those things. It's and just we, disrespectful we to the public. It is. It's and it, well, it's not just that. It's also very, very dangerous. Right. And this has been so. Back in 2015, I was part of some public hearings uh, with the FRA on this question, and community after community, and senators and mayors and people from all across the country are in there testifying about the increasing number of problems that they're having at their crossings and their situations like that. Um, but so far, the overwhelming power of, of these corporations, and we witnessed an aspect of that in this last round of bargaining where they were able to get even the national administration to treat the dispute as if there was only one party to it, which were the railroad workers, and that they didn't have any rights to, uh, to redress. So um, instead of addressing the, the cause of the of the redress and that's still out there to be resolved. Right. But I should say that it's like it's the PSR is not just a problem of not having enough people. That's a big part of it. But they also uh, because they're, you know, they're so interested in the operating ratio. They they sell off equipment. They mothball locomotives. They uh, get rid of hump yards. They they uh, sell real estate, all kinds of things that were assets that provided opportunities. There were tools that could be used to have safer operation, but it looked great on the next quarter's report. Right. That's something that's standing out to me is, and this is not a trend unique to the railroad industry, but it seems very uh, egregious in the railroad industry, is that you have these capitalists just like strip mining their own capacity. And, and you know, more or less sabotaging their own operations just to 
hit some numbers on the next quarter without any long-term thinking whatsoever about even their own efficiency and operations, much less worker safety and, you know, public safety. Yeah, well, so you hit on a good point here, this financial strip mining thing, which is something that the hedge funds have done in a lot of other industries where they take a healthy company and they they strip mine it financially by this process of stock buybacks, basically. In other words, so they invest enough in the industry to get their people on the board, their board votes for the policies that end up creating these situations with the buybacks, then they can take their money and leave. And they basically what they do is they end up leaving the rotting hulk of what was once a a good performing uh, corporation of one kind or another with all the saddled with the debt that they've transferred all around. Now that is a process that's still ongoing with the class one railroads in North America. Uh, some of them are starting to make some noises like they're understanding that essentially these policies that looked so good at the time are actually making it impossible for them to function in a certainly in a safe way going forward yeah and so you know i mentioned that you are uh you know you're a veteran railroader you've been a a regional officer of of your union and now you're a representative for the railroad workers united um which is a you know a broad um Crosscraft solidarity caucus of railroad workers, and so what are y'all? You know, what is kind of y'all's uh, uh, ten point plan, so to speak? I know that you don't have like a, a ten point plan. But <laughs> right, what right. is your proposal? What well, are your, tell what you are what, y'all proposing? Uh, first of all, we we try to make sure that everybody understands exactly what it is that precision schedule railroading does. It's not precision, it's not scheduled, and it's not railroading. And the second part pertinent to this, I mean, there's there's lots to talk about, but is that what we now know is, is that the people who live in North America cannot depend on the class one railroads as they are constituted to not only keep them safe, but also not to to serve them, not to provide the transportation services that that we need. So Railroad Workers United has joined with other groups like United Electrical Workers and, and an increasing number of others to say that, look, this is, we have ample evidence across the century that we need the railroads to be operated in the public interest because the carriers they'll they'll play the common carrier utility card when it suits them and all the rest right. of the time they'll say hey this is private keep out don't right. tell us what to do even though they continually take and take and take and take from the public patrimony so uh railroad workers united calls for the public ownership of the railroads uh, you can go to uh, railroadworkersunited.org. You can uh, see our resolutions on this matter, also on the technical matters that we talked about earlier, like ECP breaks. So Railroad Workers United for, uh, functions in the way that uh, we've needed for 150 years, which is all the different people and all the different crafts on all the different railroads are all divided up in one way mm-hmm. or another. Railroad Workers United works to to get uh, a, a voice for all of the stakeholders, mm-hmm. all of the the not, well, including the public. All the right. stakeholders need to be heard. Kind of like um 
like a one one big union, something something like that. <laughs> um. <laughs> we're we're not Railroad Workers United is not. Yeah, right, we're yeah, all no. union. We're almost all except for the ones that work on short line railroads that aren't organized. We're all members of unions and we are active in our unions. But what we find is that that's insufficient. Right. That's right. not. Uh, and in my career. Uh, as I said, I've been a local and regional officer. I, you know, and I know the ins and outs. I know how it all works. I know where the bodies are buried, mm. and we need a railroad workers united. We need a we need an organization of this kind in order to do the things that aren't otherwise being done. So speak up. And one of the problems, and this is a practical one, is is that the culture on almost every class one railroad is, is that uh, people who are actively on the job working are afraid to speak up mm. there. Uh, that's uh, in recent years, we were able to successfully get some whistleblower protections, but historically people are victimized when they stand up and they tell about what's really going on behind the curtain. Uh, so that's another thing that we're in a position to do with Railroad Workers United is to be able to talk openly right. about the things that, that are not represented at any of the tables. Uh, and the regulators are largely captured by the carriers. They largely uh, are are an adjunct to the carriers, what they want. Mm -hmm. And this is a dangerous situation. We've got to do something and, about it. And, you know, talking about the regulatory capture, I cannot fathom the position that Pete Buttigieg is putting himself into. I mean, you know, this is a guy that obviously he, he's got ambitions. And, you know, how is it that he thinks he's going to win a Democratic primary, much less a general election, when his tenure at the Department of Transportation is so lackluster? I mean, we're talking about breaking a rail strike. We're talking about not, um, you know, <laughs> not even instituting after this major accident a incredibly narrow Obama safety regulation not even going beyond that but just reinstituting yeah. a narrow i mean it's it's bizarre but um and i also wanted to to um for the public ownership of the rails what you were mentioning there i wanted to uh you know expand on that just a bit we had a long conversation specifically about that with another member of railroad workers united paul Lindsay, and he pointed mm -hmm. out to me that what y'all are calling for is not a public ownership of the rail companies, which is something that I would support and I would be fine with, but it's a little bit less, it's a little bit less than that. And it is literally an ownership of the rail roads, just like the government owns the car roads, the government should own the railroads because, and, and this is something that maybe people don't know, the, the tracks, the tracks themselves are not owned by the public which is bizarre, which is really, really bizarre. It's also pretty unusual in the, in the world. In, right. in the world, a world broadly, it's very weird that, uh, uh, you know, at least in a developed nation, uh, that the infrastructure is just left in the hands of the private profiteers. Right. So now in Railroad Workers United, we are, you know, we're a diverse group. We have a number of different kinds of ideas about, exactly what this notion of public 
control public ownership is. Uh, but you've seen our resolution and mm-hmm. what well, we understand the most important thing, which is right. something that people in this country have understood in the past sometimes, like World War One, is that you cannot count on the private boards of directors of the class one railroads to do the right thing. So if we right. want the right thing done, we're going to have to take it over. Fritz Edler, veteran railroader, member, representative of Railroad Workers United. Is there anything else that you think uh, that you wanted to hit on before we let you go? Uh, no, I would just say, that please, I mean, this the reason why this particular accident rose to the level that in public attention it did was because of the toxins and, and things right. like that. But as you look at the wreck picture behind me, for example, it wasn't the same way. Do we have to have people die? Do we have to have communities destroyed? Do we have to, in order to be able to stop this, uh, (laughs) pun accepted, whatever, stop this train, stop this uh, process where the railroads are making by policy their their properties less safe they're, and they're also making it a place where nobody wants to work mm-hmm. uh, you you i mean they 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 admit now that they've gotten rid of too many people but problem is it's pretty hard to hire a conductor when you tell them first of all you won't have any private life and not only that but we're trying to eliminate your job right so uh, they're they're struggling. Uh, one of the people on this particular wreck out in Ohio was a trainee. They're in the process of trying to get those people back because they desperately need them to just provide basic service. But uh, so the, the the railroads are making it a place where nobody's going to want to work, and and that it's going to be every single day going forward an accumulated additional risk. Fritz, thank you for taking the time. This thank morning. you so much. Appreciate really it. enjoyed it. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Yep. So long. All right, folks. Uh, that was Fritz Edler, veteran railroader, uh, former local and regional officer of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineer and Trainmen, a Teamsters affiliate and current representative for the Railroad Workers United, um, talking about the train derailment in Ohio. Yeah, definitely uh, send my solidarity and love and support to Railroad Workers United. RWU is doing fantastic work. Um, I think Fritz really hit on it that it's something that's you know been long needed mm-hmm. uh, to have that kind of cross-craft solidarity, get the members from different unions talking to each other uh, amongst themselves, and then you know bringing in the public uh, because we all have a stake here. Yeah. And you know I really appreciate appreciate him giving us some background on that, and I certainly appreciate the work RWU is doing uh, because I think a nationalization of the rails is. Absolutely, uh, a needed step. Yeah, it's you know when you say nationalization of the rails. I mean, he mentioned that that they have you know they have some diverse views and so right. Of course, hinting at maybe he was hinting at that he kind of like me thinks that it would also make sense to nationalize the companies themselves. But but just just setting that aside, their resolution calling for public ownership of the rails of the tracks is. Common so, sense. So common sense. Yeah. You would not allow UPS to own our interstate highway system. Right. Like that just wouldn't make sense. That right. wouldn't make sense at all. So obviously the rails should be owned and operated by and for the public good. So obvious. Yeah. I mean, because look at what we've seen over the years. We've seen the railroad companies monopolize the railroad industry. 
They have systemically weakened regulations by lobbying these crooked sellout politicians and bureaucrats. They have reduced their own staff by thousands, people that they need to have safe, efficient operations. They've deferred maintenance and capital investments, all while engaging in these massive stock buybacks. Right. They've worked with the Biden admin and both parties in Congress to prevent their own workers from engaging in their legal right to strike, their human right to strike. And this is all happening while these rail barons, just like they're you know, coming back from the 19th century, you know, they're engorging themselves on these record profits while stripping their own operational capacity in a way that threatens the American people and the American economy, uh, you know, to say nothing of their own workforce. So it's just really disgusting. So uh, speaking of the Gilded Era and uh, rail barons, um, you know, we've been we we talked last week to a rail worker about this train derailment in Ohio. And since that came out, uh, there have been like a dozen or more derailments like since that happened 15 days ago or something like it's just every day there's like, oh, there's a new derailment. This one didn't have any toxic chemicals, but. Wow, that's weird that there's another derailment. And look, this one did have toxic chemicals. There was one that had toxic chemicals like in Texas or something, right? Not to the extent of the Ohio one, but still like, wow, that's weird. And then just yesterday, it started being circulating that like, oh, this actually happens all the damn time. This is actually a super common occurrence, trains derailing, uh, that there were... What was it that you said, Adam? Seventeen hundred last year? Uh, I believe actually it's a seventeen hundred a year. Like that's uh, I believe that's like that, the common the, thing. The, the yeah. average is roughly that's wild accidents per year. That's totally, totally wild. And um, so of course, and and you know, national media totally silent silent on it. Uh, more or less, and conservative media was silent on it for about the first week and a half, and they've hooked on to a couple of stories that they think that they can go with to try to protect the bosses from, you know, from being held accountable for this. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, like, do you want to get attention for it? Because sometimes it's better that Issues don't even get right. covered by by some of this media because it's yeah. like, do you want ignorance or do you want uh, misinformation? Right. Yeah. False consciousness or something. Yeah. So let's see what uh, Tim Pool is saying about about this derailment. All right. Let me get this guy lined up here. Or County, North Carolina in early December, damaging equipment in what local authorities called a targeted attack that cut off power to more than 45,000 people. So how is it that we are suggesting it is accidental? We have right here knowledge, direct knowledge, direct statements in the press. Extremist groups did attack our power grid. What about the train? Remember when it's going down, the far left extremist website gave instructions on how to derail trains? And now no, trains are derailing and they're full of chemicals and they're exploding. <laughs> I missed that memo. Yeah, I don't know. Trains derail, man. Yeah, you don't. They know. really That's do. Correct. So what can be said? Is it a network of terrorists that are attacking our grid? It may be. <laughs> it may be. 
But what can you do with this information? Here's the good part. Whether or not it's true is not what matters. (laughs) Though it does play a role. If it's true that there is a network of extremists sabotaging U.S. infrastructure, then oh boy. Oh boy. I would argue that you should increase the amount of guns. (laughs) Now, is there a network of lizard people intentionally causing train accidents? Just to make Norfolk Southern look bad. Is it possible? <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's true or not. But you need more guns. That's the... that. Could you imagine? That's the... For twenty nine ninety nine <laughs> per month, I have an uh, annual subscription. You know, twenty nine ninety nine per month or annual subscription of hmm, 500 And you could get the answers to those questions. There's a resolution. The resolution to the issue of... Trains derailing because of bad brakes and outdated infrastructure. And uh, deregulation for six decades within the transportation Uh, industry. How do you you fix that, Tim Pool, Mr. Tim Pool? Well, uh, buy a gun. Buy a gun. That's his answer. Buy a gun. Buy a gun. That's, which is, which is, you know, like, I don't care. Buy a gun. Buy a gun. You know, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me, but that's, like, not the solution to this story. <laughs> uh, no. No, it's not. And uh, I really, this guy in particular, I really hate the way he, um, he spreads a lot of misinformation about uh, anti-fascists and uh, pretending as if there's this, like, shadowy cabal of terroristically inclined leftists out there. Uh, just committing all sorts of violence and and mischief and sabotage and I mean it's just it's just disgusting because there are people out there who actually listen to this guy mm-hmm. and take him seriously and right. you know there are people who probably walk away from his stuff thinking there really are like commies under the bed right you know like they're out there you know and that just ooh it. it that you well, talk about uh, evil, that's evil because it's this crazy. motherfucker knows he's lying to of people. Course. He knows of he's bullshitting people and and getting money off of it and and confusing people and getting people riled up over bullshit and it just. I and the know. funny thing is, in the majority report covered this other clip, and maybe I should have pulled the other clip, but I, I didn't want to exactly cape the you know a lot of what they covered. Um, but there was another clip. Where he talked it, it was literally the same day, he was wearing the same clothes, the same beanie, the same story, but his conclusion was, actually, there's only, there's like 1,700 trains that derail every year. Maybe people are just making too big of a, too big of a fuss about this. People are losing their minds because of the media. You know, this isn't Chernobyl. The same day! Oh my god, so... Yeah, the media is making a big deal out of this, but oh, by the way, it could be. Antifa. It could also be a domestic terrorist network, in which case you need to arm up immediately. No, no, not in which case you need to arm up. Whether or not it's true, you need to arm up. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Uh, Infinite Content says yes. There is a there is a network of extremists in the U.S. causing derailments. They're called corporate rail owners. Indeed, indeed. So, uh, so that's how those are kind of the dual tracks that that um, uh, that Tim Pool was taking. Charlie Kirk is more following Tucker Carlson's example. I didn't pull a clip from Tucker Carlson, but he went basically with this with this shtick too. Uh, so let's take a look at what Charlie Kirk is saying 
about uh, the train derailment. Oh, God. Not a single member of the Biden regime would dare to go to this portion of Ohio and breathe in the air because they know it's dangerous. They know that it is actively poisoning the citizens of Eastern Ohio. So okay, why just is one it that they kind of shrug there, their shoulders? On. Yeah, let me yeah, see yeah, if I yeah, can this is, And they uh, say, ah, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. It's very simple. It's because the war on white people continues. Uh, why would you care for the white working class voters? Yeah, well, we've... <sighs> Yeah, well, I was going to stop and say, like, okay, look, see here, this is a real issue. Right, yeah. I, uh, he opens up trying to, you know, garner sympathy mm -hmm. and and portray himself as sympathetic to the people in this area who are legitimately being poisoned and dealing with inadequate government response. Um Yeah. Ugh. And then to— Yeah, uh, let's pull—let pull it back and let pull it back a little bit. Sure. Like— 15 seconds and let's play that again portion of ohio and breathe in the air because they know it's dangerous they know that it is actively poisoning the citizens of eastern ohio so why is it that they kind of shrug their shoulders and they say ah oh, yeah okay whatever it's very simple it's because the war on white people continues why would you care for the white working class voters in Eastern Ohio. You haven't cared about them in other reasons or other portions, and I will prove it to you. If this train derailment happened in downtown Atlanta, in the densely populated black neighborhoods, this would be the number one news story. It would be Flint Water Crisis 2.0. There would be clamoring and activism and talks for reparations. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Flint water crisis. Uh, it's still not fixed! Like, what the hell? I mean, it, does anyone think that, like, that was a benefit for, for Democrats? I, I mean, I'm... Oof. Well, it's crazy. And Judge, meanwhile, is out there saying, listen... While this derailment is happening, while the act of poisoning is happening, he's saying, look, the problem is that workers are too white. Play cut 42. We have heard way too many stories from generations past of infrastructure where you got a, a neighborhood, often a neighborhood of color, that finally sees the project come to them, but everyone in the hard hats on that project looking like, uh, uh, you know, doing, doing the good paying jobs don't look like they came from anywhere near the neighborhood. Right. You can build community wealth that will help close wealth gaps in this country if we can tear down those barriers. But that happens at the delivery level. So Buttigieg is out talking about how workers are too white. For the last couple of years, I have been warning about this crusade against white people, and people shrug their shoulders and say, oh, Charlie, why does that matter? I could tell you why it matters. When there's a crisis now and the leaders hate working class whites, they're not going to scramble to save your life. They'll lie to you and tell you to go back home while you're poisoned. That's insane. It is. I mean, and, and the, it's, you can see the division 
being fostered right there because the truth is that, of course, politicians of both party, both parties don't give a damn about working class people, whether you're white or black or, or not. Uh, Mr. Anderson in the in the comments brought up Jackson, Mississippi. Yep. Water situation there's not fixed. Oh wait, by hold, any on, means. hold on, Adam. You must be mistaken because Charlie Kirk just told me that whenever bad things happen to black people, they get fixed automatically. And that and not only do they get fixed, they get talks of reparations. That's what Charlie Kirk told me. Meanwhile, in reality, <laughs> in reality, uh, not only has it not been fixed in Jackson, the Mississippi legislature is trying to essentially gut the in, the power of Jackson, Mississippi as a as a city. Uh, I mean, and I I don't know all the details yet. I've got a couple of things to look into on that, but uh, Mississippi, the white power structure in Mississippi is seizing on this crisis to make things worse. But yeah, to hear Charlie Kirk tell it, well, it was a bunch of black folks, so surely the Democrats are going to show up and fix everything and hand out checks to everybody and be on the TV every day doing this. It's, I mean, so I don't know. removed from reality. Right, yeah. It's I just mean, objectively false. This is a narrative that is objectively, demonstrably, provably false. And even the thing and about... Divisive. Even the thing about Pete. Uh, right. As much as I... I mean, and I have real, real vitriol for Pete. I, I mean, there are things about that man that just disgust me. Mm -hmm. um, but that was definitely a disingenuous interpretation of his comments. Right. Uh, granted, Pete was being disingenuous, but that's because literally everything that comes out of his mouth is disingenuous. Right. But he didn't say that was the problem. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's just really disgusting and uh, there again and there that's are people a, listening i mean that's this. a conservative that's a conservative thing that people who you know people who build our communities should be from our you know it should be when we create wealth the people from our communities are the ones that are that are building that wealth and that are gaining from that wealth. i mean local jobs is like a big thing right absolutely and and like the idea that Oh, Pete's saying it, so it must be bad. I mean, it's so like, and and we have sympathy for the argument about how like this diversity, equity, and inclusion, and all this bullshit, you know, diversity stuff from management is just is bullshit. It's just stuff to paper over divisions, uh, to paper over worker organizing to get you to shut up. Right. And we have a lot of sympathy for that. And we actually just talked to Julia Rock a couple of weeks ago, uh, who reported on the National Restaurant Association, the other NRA, just talked about how they actually said, hey, you know what you should do to get your, uh, you know, dumb workers to get their fill of justice. You should create sustainability committees. You should create diversity committees so that they can feel empowered like there's a critique there. There's a real critique there, but the real critique actually reveals like who the people pulling the strings are, and it's the capitalists. And he doesn't want you to know that it's the capitalists. It's the people that are writing checks to fund his show that are behind the scenes that are pushing all of this nonsense on you. He wants you to think that it's black people. Right. I mean, 
you have this like neoliberal identity politics and both the 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 democrats and republicans both use it they're just two yeah. sides of that coin right they right. both they respond to each other they build off each other and they just pile bullshit on top of each other um yeah i i think i think those people do real real harm you know yes. the charlie kirks of the world i think are doing legitimate harm to people uh by poisoning our intellectual environment he's a fucking intellectual polluter you know we've been covering this child labor issue pretty regularly pretty regularly over the past few weeks and so there's this uh pro-child labor lawyer that has seen our coverage and is kind of upset by it uh, he didn't like it. He doesn't like our coverage. He is he is a pro-child labor lawyer. Um, and so he asked if he could come on and debate us about uh, whether or not child labor is good. And so we're going to be doing that in overtime. And he asked us to play one of his ads for him uh, before the debate so that people could see what he's about. Um, and so we have that ad ready I believe. And so, Adam, let's just go ahead and, and play this ad from, from this pro-child labor lawyer. Um, and then we'll be talking to him in overtime. Let's go ahead and play that. Hello, America. Have you or your loved ones been the victim of feckless unionists trying to end your career over the allegation that your arm might be amputated by the machinery at your job? Has government overreach prevented you, a 12 or 13 year old undocumented worker for whom English is a second language from getting a nice internship at one of the world's foremost wage slavers because of labor laws? Well, I got good news for you. I'm Diamond Drew Morgan and you got rights, Alabama. Beacon of hope and light in a dark, cruel world is currently under attack by activists who want to punish a Hyundai plant simply because they hired 12-year-olds and some of them lost limbs. Is that American? No. Someone needs to think of these kids. Luckily, that someone is Diamond Drew. I can't get them out of my head or my heart. Little 12-year-old Jesus, crossing thousands upon thousands of miles, multiple borders, ICE agents on his heels, with the legal right and ability to murder him and his entire family. He gets through all that, shows up at the Hyundai plant with his little resume in his hand, and they say, no, you can't work here because you're not an adult. Well, I say that's not American. Screw them. We'll sue them. But don't take my word for it. Listen to these satisfied customers. Diamond Drew Morgan got our unnamed for legal reasons workers back to work so quick they didn't even miss a shift. Except for the ones that went to the hospital. So call me, Diamond Drew Morgan, and I'll put them kids back to work. The Hyundai company was in no way associated with this commercial, which is something that we have to say in case they sue. Imagine that, us getting sued for a joke and suffering real-world repercussions when they have literally hired an entire family from ages 12 to 15 to work in their factories, but they have gotten no consequences. In fact, they have not been prosecuted. They have been rewarded with both state and federal subsidies, but we could be sued. Us, a podcast. <laughs> Diamond Drew Morgan is a trademark of Diamond Drew International. Call 1-800-DIAMOND today. All right, so there we go. Um... <laughs> A uh, pro-child labor lawyer, Diamond Drew Morgan. Um, 
that's gonna, you know, so so we're gonna be we're gonna be we're yeah. doing it like 1876 style. Yeah, uh, <laughs> gonna be asking him why he supports child labor. Um, I, I I will say that you know one of his customers was a very attractive young man. Um, kind of weird that he's like an executive at Hyundai, and then presumably he's paying this Diamond Drew guy to be his to you know. To, to I, I don't even understand how this works exactly, but we're gonna be we're gonna be talking to him. <laughs> we have on the line Diamond Drew Morgan, the pro child labor lawyer. Uh, Diamond Drew, are you there? I'm here. How y'all doing? Hey, yeah, I'm doing good. If if not, you know, just a little bit skeeved out by that, you know, by that commercial. Uh, that was, you know, that some of those things that you were that you were that's that's not like a very common thing for people to be proud of. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that you, you know, put that out as your, you know, forward facing thing instead of like secret memos to bosses. Let me ask you something. Uh, your name's Jacob, right? This yes. is the Valley labor report. Yes. You're a pro labor. Yes. The working man. Yes. But not the working boy. Seems a little hypocritical to me. You're trying to put me out of a job. You're trying to put these 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds out of a job. Now, what is it about you that makes you think you're so much better than them that you deserve all of the opportunities America provides and they do not? Well, I actually think that they do deserve the opportunities that America provides. Uh, so we agree. Time's up. All right. No, no, no. I don't even know why I got up this morning. Thank you. No, 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 no. Because I didn't, I didn't work. When I was their age, I went to school. Well, that might be part of the problem. We can kind of tell by your outfit, uh. your general demeanor, that you weren't instilled in the values of being a good American. Mm. But what's your point with that? You didn't work and what? You turned out okay? Okay. Yeah. Well, my dad used to tie me to a fence and make me do chores with my blind with blindfolds on. And I turned out okay. I don't mean he should have done well, that. I'm not totally convinced that you did turn out okay, Diamond Drew. Um, but you know, like we're we're we're, we're already jumping headfirst into this child. on the facts. Here we go with personal attacks. Yeah, Ooh, right, buddy, right, right. We're on it today. Well, you know, before we jump jump headfirst into this into this child labor stuff, I did want to hit something quick because it's not totally related, but I I did have a question. You're uh, the, one of those customers that you had in your ad, Bullhorn Bill Morgan, uh, who's mm. a, a very, very attractive person. But you mentioned you say in the ad that he's not your brother. Why did you why if he's not your brother, why would you feel the need to to say that? Well, you know, we got the same last name. Uh, we got the same stylist, same tailor. And, uh, you, know you know, that we're both. You, how do you know that you have the same tailor? Now we all, we do know each other. I just wanted to be clear that this wasn't some sort of nepotism case because that's another thing they keep trying to get rid of. Y'all are trying to fire everybody over there on the left. You don't want kids to get jobs. You don't want people who are related to the boss to get jobs. Every time I turn around, you're like, we're pro the working man, but we're going to fire everybody who don't fall in line with what we think they ought to be. Well, so, so I just yeah, didn't want anybody to think it was nepotism. I think that's fair. Well, and you know, I'm I'm not totally convinced that it's not nepotism because it's kind of surprising to me that that what company does does Bullhorn work for? Hyundai. It, it's kind of surprising to me that this international company would 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 hire you because I'm not totally sure that you've got like a really good understanding of of the law from your ad. 
Well, that's very offensive, first of all. I have a great understanding of the law. I studied it for many years at the American Samoa University Law School uh, online, and I feel like you saying that, again, you couldn't beat me on the facts, so here come the personal attacks. Now you're trying to attack my resume, which is impeccable, by the way. It's it's always the same with you folks. Like I said, you want to get rid of the working man. Someone comes on your program, you don't treat them with any respect. You're clearly not doing your background research. I mean, mm -hmm. what do you know about Hyundai and the practices they got going over there that you claim to be so against? Have you ever worked there? Do you uh, know anything about it? No, I've never worked there, but I've I've read about it, and it seems. Oh, he's read about it. Yeah. Yeah, I've read about it, and it seems pretty bad. And, and so I'm just I'm wondering why you think that that these facilities are are appropriate for children to be working Let me in. Tell because you a I mean story. this is okay, tell, Let me, tell me tell you a story. story, Jacob. All right. Uh I got to meet Todd Brady, personal hero of mine, uh one time at a Fuddruckers uh, off I seventy five. He was with his beautiful family. I was with mine. And you know, I wanted to talk to him and I did and I got a picture and all that. But I, I thought about saying to him you know, Tom, when you got beat by the Giants there in the Super Bowl, I really felt like you should have slowed down and not given Eli the ball back. But I didn't say that. You want to know why I didn't say that? Because wow. if he'd have said, well, what do you know about football? I'd have said, well, I read about it. Hey, I read about it, Tom Brady. Well, I read about it. Monday morning quarterback and Tom and I read about it. You don't know anything about the Hyundai plant other than what the liberal biased media said to you about it. And it, so you, you talk about child labor practices. They got to practice. Practice makes perfect. You think Tom Brady don't practice? Well, no, no, no. Yeah. But we don't want to be perfect in child labor because we want children to be learning things as opposed to working in these dangerous facilities. I mean, this are, are you saying that it's just not true that this facility was was fined $50,000 for amputation hazards? I'm saying that that's unfair and goes against the American way. You you just hit the nail on the head. Sometimes, I swear to God, even though y'all all dress like you're in a 90s music video, sometimes y'all back your way into a point. You just made a good point accidentally. It's about education. These kids mm -hmm. are learning how to be workers in our American system. They'll learn to go to work 40 hours a week, maybe 60 if we can change that unfair law. And... Mm be a good part of the American dream because my dream is for things to work the way they ought to. And part of that is somebody's got to make stuff in America. And if it ain't going to be me, then it should be the 14 year olds who are poor. Well, but pretty simple. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't think it is. I think that they should, I think they should be in school instead of working in these, these, I mean, th there's a, there are stories out there about 13-year-olds being killed on the job. Well, I don't believe any of them. Personally, I've, I've never seen anything that I would say constitutes proof on the death of them. As far as them being in school, they are in school. You know, let, let's talk and think about school. You can go to school for all sorts of stuff. Why can't you go to school for building cars? What's wrong with that? Well, they have, they have trade school. But you're not right. actually there. They can just do that when they get to be 16 and, and actually learn instead of in, in, instead of working in these dangerous facilities. Well, not everybody was born rich like maybe you were and they can't afford to mm -hmm. go to trade school, you know, and I know, oh, well, there's scholarships for that. Look, man, and everybody is lucky 
as we are. And not everybody's as lucky as these kids. I, dude, you know how I would have loved the chance to go to work in a factory at 14 years old. But unfortunately, the era I was born into, uh, most people who looked like me had plenty. And I didn't have to do that. And frankly, I think I'm a little worse for it. I, I own two boats. Would I own five if I had had to work in a factory when I was 15? Who could say, but probably. probably. Makes you think, Jacob. It so, makes you think. Yeah, it, it does make me think. So do you have a limit on how young, because most people, you know, we decided something like a hundred years ago that, you know, 14, 15, 16 year olds shouldn't be working in manufacturing environments. Um, but you know, you, you're obviously, you're not of that opinion. You're, you know, you, you reckon that we should go back a hundred years. Is there a limit for you? Like, is it, would it be okay? You know, we're, we've been talking about 13, 14, 12 year olds. Would you represent a nine year old who wanted to work at, at the Hyundai plant? If a nine year old wanted that job and that was the dream they have in their heart, I would probably be their lawyer. Now, if you're asking me, do I feel like there's a limit on the side of practicality? Sure. There's the reason Hyundai ain't hiring nine-year-olds. They can't keep up. I mean, look, we're not crazy. We know eight-year-olds can't build a Kia Sorento. They don't know how. That's why we got them in school. Okay, so you want you want school up until age 12 and then Hyundai plant at 13. I mean, that sounds like a fine way to run things to me. Okay. So, you know, we've got, you've laid out your position. I think, you know, we've, we've laid out ours about the, the morality of, of, of the child labor, but you seem convinced in this ad that the, that these bosses have the right to hire these people. And I'm, and I'm not convinced that's the case. I think that, our child labor, I think you would have to actually change the law. I don't think they have the right to hire 12 year olds. Well, there's the law and then there's God's law and then there's the constitution and then there's God's constitution. So which law, I don't know which law you're talking about here. I mean, I don't know what you're I'm talking about. The laws, the laws of the state of Alabama and, and the United States of America. Well, first of all, those are two different laws right there. Right, okay, and they're both. As we've seen time and time again, the federal comes down on Alabama trying to make them do stuff that they well, don't Well, no, Alabama do. has a law. Alabama's, Alabama's state law says you can't work in manufacturing environments under 16. And I'm saying you got rights and you got to challenge things. I believe it was Martin Luther King who said that any law that goes against how things ought to be, you got to break that law. Is that right? Is that, is that what he said? It's a direct quote. It's a direct quote. Okay. All right. Well, maybe you guys should have went to that school. You guys are so up on, maybe you should have paid better attention. Maybe she was back in the back of the classroom flirting or whatever you was doing. My point is you're telling me it's against the law. I'm saying you got rights. You got rights, but I, I don't think you do. I, I don't think law, you do have rights. rights. I don't you do but, have but rights. rights come from the law. They come from the constitution, which Jesus wrote. And it says you have the right to the pursuit of happiness. Is that not in there? It is in there. Yeah. Yeah, it's in there. Well, let me tell you what makes Diamond Drew and his clients happy. Making money by hiring people who are cheaper, which includes, but is not limited to, that's the part you also keep skipping. It's not like there's just a whole factory full of 13-year-olds. It's like 20, 30% people who are older than that. 
That's what okay. makes me happy. Okay. That makes okay. Um all right. Well, you know, this is this has definitely been an experience. I don't know, Adam, do you is there it, it I I I'm just almost speechless. Do you have any other any questions for for the this this Diamond Drew fellow? Yo Sam and Mam over here can't spit it out. Can you got anything? You know what, Diamond Drew? Um I gotta I gotta ask you. So what like has been the well, thank you, sir. Uh, yeah. I'm glad there's one on this podcast who knows how to dress like a grown-up. You want to talk about kids, change your right. hat. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, so Diamond Drew, um, do you have a particular client that you've worked for? And that does it just, is there a story you have about a client you've worked for that just, you know, warms your heart? You told us what you like. You told us what mm -hmm. makes you happy. You know, do you mm -hmm. have, do you have a, is there a particular client? I mean, because I just, it boggles my mind to think there are people who think child labor is okay in the year 2023. You're saying it's cool. You're saying it's good. You're saying you have clients who come to you and want to pursue this. So, mm, yes. You, have so you I, actually I, had I'm not someone? To, I'm not allowed to say names. We'll, we'll change sure. the names to protect the innocent, the okay. innocent victims of American tyranny. I had a client okay. that came to me one time. Uh, it was a car manufacturer um from we'll say an asian country who had a factory in allegedly alabama and they had someone who wanted to work there for them we'll we'll call his name oscar and oscar was 14 years old came to this country by himself the things that he had to go through to get here to live his american dream you, you couldn't imagine what he had to overcome and he gets here and his whole goal is to make money to send back home to his family. And I'll never forget what this 14 year old said to me. Look me right in my eyes, said, Mr. Diamond Drew, I would give an arm and a leg to help my family. I said, buddy, I guarantee you with my help, that's exactly what you're gonna do. And then years later, you know, he did. He lost an arm, and we got a little settlement out of that, not to mention that he worked for five years, sent that money back home, brought two of his brothers over. They also went to work for Hyundai, cut that part. That's not who it was. And now they all got sent back home because they got caught by ICE, and the government took the house that they built that they had paid for full price in Alabama, and I got some of that money too. And they're back home and you know they've got a little bit of a nest egg that they can uh have back there because they got to live the american dream for what a decade who gets that you know what i mean who gets a decade of their dream not most people i tell you that right now diamond drew i just i find it disgusting i i can't believe me it. too I, american I, tyranny is gross you know i just I, I can't believe that and and i just gotta ask so what if what if we had a society where immigrants and refugees could go to school, live a decent life, have housing, health care, a safe, you know, a safe life. And they didn't have to engage in child labor. What about that? Like, have you ever thought about what America could be like without requiring child labor? It sounds to me like you're talking about a free ride. Oh, and mm. you know, I've got to be honest with you in times of weakness, I have wondered what it would be like. For people not to have to work as hard as I have. 
you know, when I inherited, when I inherited my daddy's law practice, I had that's hard work, huh? I had nothing. That's what I started out with nothing. And I built it into what it's built into. And that to me is the American dream. So you asked me, what have I thought about that? Yeah, I've thought about it. Wakes me up in cold sweats, to be honest with you. Right. But I just feel like that'd be communism. Mm. Yeah, I, I take it you're you're against communism. <laughs> Is that was that some? Kind I, I of mean, I, I was just asking. I, I'm just curious. I mean, you're, you're telling me you're also for child labor. I don't know what you're for, what you're against. You know, I'm for uh, freedom. Okay, uh, and the things I hate the most. All right, taxes, the Taliban, and communism. And you can write that down, put it on a T-shirt, and sell it on one of your little web things. Okay. Well, yeah. All right. I I think I'm done, Jacob. Yeah. I'm I'm good. <clears throat> all right. We've we've heard well, enough. Um, I find it disturbing. Uh, Diamond Drew, I, I wish you no success in court. I hope all of your lawsuits and frivolous challenges fail. Um, and I hope your clients, your corporate clients, rot in hell. So there you go, Diamond Drew. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say thanks for having me on, fellas. In spite oh, yeah, of that. you're welcome. And so, in spite of that cold send-off, I, I, I mean, you all know harm in my heart. I want you to know I've been an underdog my whole life, you know. Um, I remember getting picked on at the country club by people mm -hmm. like you. And uh, I don't think it was people like us. <laughs> I think they were well, probably pretty, true. They were probably pretty that's different true. if they were at the trunk, country club. That's true. You guys look like you got sickle cell anemia or something. Uh, but, other, but I'm saying okay. that – I'm an underdog and hearing things like that don't bother me. I can't be bullied. That's why I went to law school. Mm -hmm. Okay. And dad made me, and I can't be bullied, but I do. Thank you. Okay. I'll be praying for y'all. Mm. Please do. <clears throat> Please do. All right. All right. Thanks. Well, Tommy, bless dude. America. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks for, thanks. Thanks for, thanks for, thanks for whatever that was. Thanks for whatever that was. All right, folks, once again, thank you so much for joining us for another special pre-taped episode of the Valley Labor Report and this look back at some big moments from the Valley Labor Report and specifically 2023. We hope you enjoyed this show. We hope you enjoyed this collection of great topics that we've covered. Definitely, definitely, if you haven't already, please consider helping us start the new year on the right foot. TVLR.fm slash postage. Donate whatever you can. Every little bit goes a long way. You can help us continue to expand as we go into the new year. Again, we've got some big plans, but we are going to need your help to realize them. So please consider doing that uh, if you have any spare change around or if you're feeling that giving spirit of the holidays. Again, I have been your host, Joe Harrison, your guest host, graphic designer, video production editor extraordinaire, and it has been my honor to join y'all on this special pre-taped episode. Next week, Jacob and Adam will be back, and we will be back to our regular live broadcasting, so definitely join us for that. And once again, feel free to leave a voicemail, send us a text message, 844-855-TVLR. 
and Jacob and Adam will be able to respond to that live next weekend, January 6th, when they return. I hope you all have a great new year, and I hope that this new year in general gets off to a good start for all of us. And once again, it is my privilege to say all power to the workers. Thank you all for listening.